Well, please turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. And that should be on page 978 of your pew Bible. It's Ephesians chapter 5. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, we're going to take just a few weeks here to explore what difference the gospel makes in our life the practical areas of our lives where the gospel is to come and deal with specifically. You know, uh, looking at John's gospels we have over ten months or so, I hope was something that was nourishing to your soul, something that fueled it and propelled you to want to desire Christ even more. But I think that as that gospel becomes a reality in our life, as we understand it as being something other than just a set of facts, but understanding it as something that personally applies to us, it changes our life. In fact, that's what Paul is getting at in his entire letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters of the, of the letter to the Ephesians is Paul spelling out the gospel, that it is by grace that we are saved, through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast, and that Jesus has come to us and taken the initiative to break down that wall of hostility and establish peace. But then what he does in the final three chapters of Ephesians is say what difference this makes. And that's what we're going to explore this week and next week. And so I want to take a moment to to read this passage. I know that in your bulletin it says we're going to be exploring verses 15 through 21, but we're just going to be looking at a few short verses today, verses 18 through 21 of chapter 5. This is what Paul says to us here. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. Well, there is a famous story about an early church father who lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries by the name of Augustine. He was from a rather noteworthy city by the name of Hippo, in what is now the country of Algeria, in North Africa. And Augustine was a brilliant young man. He was a brilliant student, one of the sharpest minds of the day and age. But he was also a wild, licentious frat boy, for all intents and purposes. He knew how to have a good time in every imaginable way. But he had a very godly mother, and his mother would pray for him regularly, daily, that he would come to repentance and come to see and savor Jesus Christ and to embrace him by faith. And soon enough, at a certain point in time in Augustine's life, he did come to know Christ. He did come to see his sin for what it was and he came to repent of it and he came to believe in Jesus Christ and place his hope in him. Well, the story goes that one day he is walking down the streets of his hometown and one of his former female companions was walking along the other side of the street. And she sees him and says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And he just ignores her. He continues to walk down the road. And she says, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And he turns to her and says, Yes, but it is no longer me. Well, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is that when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see who Christ is and enables us 
believe in Him, to express faith in Him, breaks free our souls from the bondage of sin and enables us to embrace Christ through faith, that always leads to a changed life. We're no longer the same person. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. And that's what happened to Augustine, and that's what happens to everyone who comes to know Jesus Christ. The reality is this. Justification and sanctification go together. You know, in Forrest Gump, where he says, Jenny and me go together like peas and carrots. Well, justification and sanctification go together like peas and carrots. And what I'm saying is that we stand before Christ. We stand before God based upon the work of Christ for us alone. Based upon what He has done for us alone. Based upon His grace for us alone as we receive it through faith. But the reality is, is that He saved us to something. He saved us to a life that begins to look like His. He saved us to holiness to a life of faithfulness to Him, where the fruit of the Holy Spirit is being welled up within our lives. It's starting to look different. And we no longer conform to the pattern of the world that we used to conform to, but we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's what sanctification, that big biblical word that we see throughout Scripture, really means. It means that our life is starting to produce actual holiness. And the the reason why that's the case is because there will always be evidence in our lives, of spiritual fruit, of faithfulness to Him, to one degree or another, however much we may fail at that. And that is the message that Paul wants to get across to us this morning. He wants us to understand that maturing Christians are going to be people who enjoy a Spirit-filled life, and whose life is being increasingly dominated by the Holy Spirit. And the way in which Paul brings this to bear upon our lives and gets us to understand it is through a rather strange analogy that he builds here. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I think there's a sense in which drunkenness on wine and being filled with the Spirit actually, believe it or not, go hand in hand to some degree. Because when you are drunk you are being controlled by that thing, aren't you? You're being controlled by the drink that you are getting drunk on. That's what we say. When we say that someone is drunk, we say that they are under the influence. And so someone who is under the influence of copious amounts of alcohol gets drunk on it. Well, the similarity there is that we are to be filled with the Spirit under the influence of the Spirit, where the Spirit is flowing through our lives and changing the way in which we live, in which we view the world, in which we understand ourselves, and by which we understand God. And that's where the similarity between the drunkenness and the being filled with the Spirit begins, and that's also where it ends. Because they are completely antithetic to to one another in every other manifestation. Because what Paul is saying here is he's saying that drunkenness is something that subverts the witness of God in your life. That's what intoxication does. It subverts the witness of God in your life because it's communicating to yourself and to the world and to God that you're deriving your pleasure and your identity from what it is that you consume than from the God that you worship. Now, I think there's a sidebar comment that needs to be made here about this. And here's what it is. In the Bible, nowhere, anywhere, on any page of Scripture... Do you see that 
the consumption of alcohol is prohibited by God. It's just not there. You may have heard it from some place, but that's not what's in Scripture. The only rule that we have on this is drunkenness and to obey the laws of the state, as we see in Romans chapter 13, which means that you don't drink until you're 21 years old in the United States of America. But the Bible does not condemn the consumption of wine or alcohol in any way. In fact, we see that Jesus turned water into wine. He did that as his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. And that was a celebratory thing. That wine did have alcohol in it, by the way. It wasn't grape juice. We also know that in the Lord's Supper, in the upper room where he was instituting the Lord's Supper and having that Passover meal with the disciples, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, and in that cup was wine. And there was an alcohol content to it. We also see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that Paul actually instructs Timothy to drink wine for his ailing stomach. There was an alcohol component to that wine. So it is not prohibited. There are wisdom issues that are involved in this. And you need to know that. But it's not prohibited. It's something that that is imposed upon the consciousness of so many people that is not in the Bible. But it begs the question, though, and this begs the question, why would Paul draw this contrast? between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Why would he draw that contrast? I think one reason why he does this is because drunkenness promises something to us that it cannot deliver. It promises something that it can't deliver. It promises more control over our lives, but it actually brings us to less control. It promises more freedom but it actually enslaves us to the effects of whatever it is that we're drinking. It promises us security, but it actually fuels our insecurity by causing us to make decisions that bring about insecurity over the long term. And you know how you can tell when a person is drunk? You can tell when they start to act irresponsibly, when they're reckless, when they're foolish and unwise and out of control. In fact, that's what debauchery means. It's when something other than the Holy Spirit is fueling what it is that you believe and what you do and what you say. And I don't think at all that it is a stretch of Scripture to stretch this out and see how we are intoxicated by so many other things. This is not just an issue of drinking wine. This is an issue that expands much beyond that. You know, in our culture, we use a term called workaholic, don't we? It's a a play on the word alcoholic. We say that they're workaholics, people who are addicted to their work. All of their identity comes from their work. It's what they do. It's what they build their life upon, and it causes them to neglect the other privileges and responsibilities that they have in their life. It causes them to neglect their family, and their friends, and their church, and all the other things that they have going on in their life because their whole self-definition is built upon their work. And so we call people like that workaholics. That happens in very, very many people's lives, maybe even yours, to one degree or another. Maybe that describes you. Maybe it... You're a person who is addicted to your work. Maybe you're addicted to your family. Something very good. Work and family are very good things. 
But they become ultimate things in our lives and they cause us to neglect many of those other areas of life where we live out the Christian life. I want to speak to men for just a second here because this is an issue in our life. Many of us are drunk and intoxicated with our quest for personal comfort. It's what we derive our identity from. Perhaps in your house, you haven't put a plate in the dishwasher in 40 years or folded a piece of laundry or picked your stuff up off the floor and you've told yourself that that's the women's work. Everybody has different responsibilities in the household. That is true. But there's a sense in which we can be deriving our own personal comfort by just being plain reckless and irresponsible and unloving in the way in which we live with our spouses. And this isn't just a men's problem. It's a women's problem too. You do this. Maybe perhaps you nag at your husband. You belittle him. And you try to conform him into the person that you told yourself that you deserve. And it's all a quest for your own personal comfort. You're drunk on that. You're intoxicated by it. And you wonder why he gets passive-aggressive at times. Think about this intoxication on your personal comfort in terms of the way in which you handle conflict in your life. You know, everybody has someone in our life who offends us, who hurts us, who tears us down and ticks us off. Well, there are a lot of ways in which we can handle that, right? We can bottle it up, give the person the silent treatment and the cold shoulder. We can unload on them, give them a piece of our mind, not hold anything back, let them have it. I guess in the South we call that pitch in a conniption fit, something like that. We can also go off and tell everybody else what a jerk that person was. Tell everybody that we know about what a jerk that person is other than the actual person who offended us. Have you ever done any of those things? I've done all three of them many, many times. And if you're honest with yourself, you have too. How'd that work out for you? That lashing out thing? Is that really kind of making your life better? Is that bringing more harmony to your friendships, the cold shoulder deal? Is that making your marriage better, that you gossip? See, the reality is that it's that kind of thing, that kind of action in our life that's exposing what's flowing underneath our skin, what's flowing through our veins. It's showing off what we are intoxicated by. And it's showing that there is debauchery in our life. It's showing that there's drunkenness and recklessness and irresponsibility, and that we're deriving our identity from something other than the Holy Spirit. See, it exposes what's flowing through our lives. And what it exposes is our insecurity. It exposes that whoever it is that hurt our feelings is the one from whom we are deriving our contentment. Maybe it's several people. It also exposes the object of our worship. Because when we either actively lose it or passively lose it, when someone hurts our feelings, it shows that the thing that we really worship is ourselves. It shows that we are intoxicated with ourself more than we are intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Because if what you really need in all of your life 
is the respect, the admiration of other people in order to give you any sense of mental and emotional and spiritual sobriety. You're showing that you worship yourself more than you worship the God who was offended to the point of crucifixion. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see here. He's trying to get us to see that those responses are indications of our slavery. They're not indications of our freedom. They rob us of our authenticity. If you want to be authentic to what God has made us to be, then you do so by living your life like Christ, by becoming more and more like Christ. And that only happens, my friends, as the Holy Spirit starts to weave himself through our lives, as he starts to flow through, through our veins, and as his fruit starts to well up within our lives, and he begins to produce the characteristics of Jesus, which are things like love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Things like that become characteristic of our life more and more. I don't know about you, but I have never once in my life met a drunk person who is characterized by those things. They're just not there at all. But see, when we can be people who go and seek peace with people who've hurt us and start to seek kindness and gentleness and self-control in the midst of our relationships in that way, it's at that point when we're starting to live out the particulars of the Spirit-filled life. And that's what Paul wants us to see here. But it begs the question, doesn't it? How do we get filled with the Spirit? What does that mean? What does the Spirit-filled life look like? What does it mean? Well, if you look at this passage, you'll notice that there's a parallel to it in Colossians chapter 3. You can or don't have to turn there with me if you want. But in Colossians chapter 3 we see that being filled with the Spirit is in many respects synonymous with letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within our lives. It means that we become Bible people, Scripture people, people who are filled with the Word of God welling up within our souls. And I think that as you and I tune into Scripture individually, as we tune into it amongst one another, speaking it, implicitly or explicitly into the particular areas of our lives. As we come here and worship week after week and we read and hear God's Word brought to bear upon our lives, the Holy Spirit actually uses that Word. It doesn't return void. He uses that Word to conform us more and more into, into who Christ is like. And I think that it produces, as we look at this passage, three byproducts, three results of being filled with the Spirit. And so here they are. Here's the first thing about being filled with the Spirit. First result, first indication of that that I think that we see in this passage. The first thing that we see in terms of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that our worship takes on an increasingly vibrant vertical and horizontal dimension. Does that make sense? Our worship takes on an increasingly vibrant vertical dimension towards God. Our hearts begin to inflame towards Him. And that plays itself out in the context of our relationships with one another in the local church. In fact, what Paul calls us to do here as the church 
is to speak to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. What that means is that when I speak to you and you speak to me and we speak to one another here, we're speaking to each other in ways that build each other up, that edify each other, that bring the Word of God to bear in some respect upon each other's lives. That means that when we speak to one another, we're seeking to have each other's best interest in view. And we're not detaching ourselves from one another, but we're engaging with one another. And that our speech has a grace-flavored, biblical truth involved in it. I cannot tell you, my friends, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for so many of you who have been that person in my life in this congregation and for the people that I've had in my life over the course of the years who have invested in me and cared about me enough to speak the truth in love to me, to bring that word to bear in some respect upon our lives. And my prayer is that we would be that for one another, that we would be a congregation, a church full of people who are interested in the spiritual and well, various other ways of well-being of each other's lives, who care for one another in such a way. But I think that Paul is not just drilling out our individual conversations here. I think that he's saying that it's through our worship together that we actually have hearts that are welled up towards Christ and which we are also building up one another. And I think he's zeroing in, strangely enough, in particular, on the singing component of our worship. I may have mentioned this before, but for about a thousand years of the history of the church, there was zero congregational singing. It didn't happen. They hired professional singers to sing, usually in a language that people did not know, in Latin, wasn't their native tongue, and the congregation was not allowed to sing. That was something that was recovered during the Reformation. I'm thankful that it was because it's not only warranted and commanded by Scripture, but it stirs up every aspect of our being. It stirs up our hearts to enjoy God. It shows that worship is something more than merely just an intellectual exercise. It's something where our whole soul is involved with it. Our affections, our hearts, our voices, our lungs, our bodies, everything is poured out to God in worship. You know, Presbyterians have rightly criticized some of our other brothers and sisters in Christ for bypassing the mind and going straight to the emotional experience in worship. But I fear that in some respects maybe we have overreacted just a little bit and we have almost squashed the fact that there is an affective emotional component to our worship that ought to be there in the life of every healthy Christian. Because what we discover is that ultimate worship in heaven, when we get to the book of Revelation, we discover that there's going to be a lot of singing. And it's going to be loud. And it's going to be joyful. And it is going to be felt at the very toes of our bodies. That's how God is going to be enjoyed even in heaven. And some of you are saying, I don't like to sing. That does not sound like a real Carnival Cruise experience to me. That we're going to be spending eternity singing in heaven. But let me tell you something. You will know a joy that is inexpressed by anything other than that in heaven. And you're going to know what that's like. Some of you, you come here on Sunday morning and you don't sing. You don't like to sing. You stand as we sing, but you don't join in that. 
And I'm not saying that to guilt you at all. That's not the point. But I am saying that to challenge you just a little bit, to push you just a little bit. Because when you don't join with God's people in song, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, you're really robbing yourself. And you're robbing others of the whole-souled worship that God so deeply desires. And that he desires not only for the sake of his glory, but that he desires for the sake of our joy. I would just be shocked if you're a person who just never sings at all. In the car, in the shower, somewhere on your own, to something that's on the radio or anything like that. If you're a person who never feels like lifting your voice in song at all, then I would suggest to you that there's a whole part of your life that has probably been crushed into non-existence or totally ill health. Because I think that everyone has an emotive, affective part of their souls. And the reason why is because we're created in the image of God. And when we look at who God is, as we read Scripture from cover to cover, we see that He's a God who becomes angry, who's full of joy, who becomes sad, who's a, joy that, a, a God who, who laughs, and a God who even rejoices over His people with singing. And it tells me and it tells you that somewhere in there, there is that affective part of our souls that is expressed so much as we sing and lift our hearts to him and voices in song. Christianity is a singing faith. It just is. It's a singing faith for a lot of reasons. If one of the other reasons why it's a singing faith and also one of the ways in which we show that we're being filled with the Spirit is that we begin to live thankful lives. We sing because we have a lot to be thankful for. You know, grumbling, complaining, was one of the besetting sins of Israel. They get set free from 400 years of slavery. And they're walking through the desert. And they start to complain that there's no steakhouse for them to go and have a nice cooked up filet mignon. They're complaining about the food. They grumble. And if you're anything like me, it's an issue in your life as well. You complain. You have a lack of contentment. You feel like the grass is greener on the other side. If you're a parent, you know how acutely annoying that is. Have your children whining and being unthankful for what you've given them in their life. That doesn't mean that there's not a time for real complaint, my friends. But my question is this. Underneath the complaint, can there be a thankful disposition? Can there be a measure of contentment? Are you growing in your understanding that God is still God, even in the midst of less than ideal circumstances? See, the drunkard, the one who is drunk, is someone who sees his circumstances as being totally out of control. But a spirit-filled Christian is someone who sees that all of his circumstances, or all of her circumstances, are under the care of Jesus Christ. They're under the care of God. And so the Holy Spirit begins to well up in our lives and we begin to have a greater fullness and an increasingly thankful heart for all the ways in which he has blessed us in our lives. 
Here's the last result, the last result of being filled with the Spirit, the indication, anyway, that we're filled with the Spirit. It's that we do this. It's that we subject ourselves to one another. That we put our interests underneath the interests of other people. We become others-centered people. That's what life is supposed to look like in the church and amongst Christians. The Holy Spirit welling up in our lives is going to cause us to live lives that are other-centered. It's going to be expressed in our relationships. You know, so much, so much of what is behind the divisions that we have in our relationships, whether it be in marriage, amongst our friends at school, amongst our colleagues at work, amongst our brothers and sisters in this local church, stem from being more concerned about our own rights and about getting the stuff that we have told ourselves that we deserve out of life than we would care about the other person. We ultimately care more about ourselves than we care about the other person. And that's drunkenness. Drunks don't care about other people. They care only about themselves. They care about getting what they want. And they're totally out of control, so they hurt other people. They're totally consumed with themselves. They're completely myopic and they don't care about living for the good of other people. But guess what a spirit-filled person looks like? A spirit-filled husband is someone who understands that he has been given so much grace that he begins to live with his wife in such a way in which he loves her to the point that he actually lays his life down for her. That would be unique in this world. It's what Jesus has done for us. He's laid his life down for his bride. Spirit-filled wives begin to serve and help and honor and respect their husbands. Spirit-filled children, no matter what your age is, begin to honor their parents. They begin to obey their parents, despite their parents' failures. And spirit-filled parents seek to raise their children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, despite how obstinate they may be. And that's just what life looks like in a household. Not to mention what it looks like in all the other spheres of our lives. The point is that we give our lives for the well-being of other people. And that is a gospel principle, my friends. That's how the gospel practically plays itself out in our lives. The gospel principle is that we only find ourselves when we give ourselves away. Which is basically a paraphrase of exactly what Jesus said in John when he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't... Jesus give up his own life in order that he might gain his people? Here's the last thing I want to mention, then I'll be done. There's a joke about that if you were in Sunday school this morning. This will only be five minutes, max. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by all this stuff that you saw in this passage. Just four verses, maybe? And there's a lot to do. There's a sense in which I even feel overwhelmed. There are a lot of imperatives. And then we look at Scripture, 
And we discovered that Jesus says that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And you see that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, just a few chapters before this, that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then we see in James that he says, faith without works is dead. And we see that Peter says that we are to no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. And then we see that John says that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So those words convict me at every corner of my life because I see hypocrisy all over the place. And there's hypocrisy all over the place in your life as well if you're going to be honest with yourself. And that's a warning to me, and I hope that it's a warning to you as well. Because God's grace leads to repentance. It leads to a life of faithfulness. It leads to a life that begins to reflect Him. And a life that doesn't look any different at all expresses that we don't know Him. So you need to get this. If a diligent striving for faithfulness and obedience is not characteristic of your life or my life, then it shows that we do not know the gospel at all. Or it shows, at the very least, that we don't know it as we ought. But I need to say this too. This is very, very important. If you or I, if we are looking to how well we serve other people, to how good we are, to what our obedience looks like, to how thankful we are to commend ourselves to God in any way whatsoever, we are also showing that we do not know the Gospel at all. Or we at least do not know it as we ought. See, the Father never accepts me on the basis of my faith through grace in Christ plus what I do for Him. Ever. That's not the gospel. That is pure, unhinged legalism. And it smells like smoke. It's straight from the pit of hell. We are able to stand before God purely on the basis of how well He has served us, not on the basis of how well we serve Him. And that is the great hope that we have as Christians. You know, when I was in seminary, my classmates and I used to joke with one another and talk amongst one another about how we were in our third year of seminary about to graduate and we felt like we knew less about God then than we did when we first entered seminary three years ago. Of course, that wasn't the truth. We knew more about God, a lot more about God. We discovered that the more we knew about God, the less we actually knew that we knew about God. We knew that we did not know Him anywhere near as much as there was to be known about Him. I think the same is true with obedience. The more Christ inflames in our life, and the more we conform to Him, the more we realize just how self-absorbed we actually are, and how callous we are to Him, and how sinful we actually are. And the more we see our need for His grace, and the more we discover what amazing grace we've actually received in the Gospel. And we start to see His love for us as being deeper than we ever imagined it to be.
And our love for Him begins to get expressed. And what we say and think and do, that becomes increasingly apparent in our lives. So the challenge, my friends, is not just to make a bunch of New Year's resolutions for moral improvement. If that's what you got out of this message, you missed it. Because that's not the point. The point, my friends, is to set our gaze upon Christ. To look at Him in His holiness, in His beauty, in His glory, in His grace, and give several times a day consideration of the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of His love for us in the Gospel. And to let that lead us to dependence upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to live a holy life. Let's think about that now as we come to Him in prayer. Father, this passage is a passage that rebukes me and no doubt rebukes many people here this morning who look at our lives and see so many areas of unfaithfulness, of ungodliness, of complacency, of wanton intoxication with something other than the Holy Spirit. And so my prayer is that we would not be people who just seek to try harder and do better in the new year, but people who are seeking and savoring Jesus Christ above all things and desiring that Your grace would grow us and mature us and wean us off of the affair that we are having with the stuff of life and cause us to treasure You above all things. Would You do that here at First Presbyterian Church in 2011? so that our lights would show, so shine before men that they would see our good works and come here and glorify You in heaven. This we pray in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.